Hey everybody, welcome back to the Liberty on Fire podcast. This is your host, Libertarian Tony. So, this podcast is going to be on the fourth Democratic primary debate, which was hosted by CNN and the New York Times in Ohio. Well, I was going to have Joey on to do this one with me, but I don't think he had a chance to really watch the debates last night. So, and I have a ton of notes that I really want to go over during this debate. So I think it would just be way too long of an episode if we did a co-hosted one on this. I'm just going to try to crank out a, uh, I guess, an analysis uh, and kind of a play-by-play of the debate and the topics so that we can get something out there. And then Joey and I are going to have to hook up for a separate, um, I guess, co-hosted podcast in the future. Okay, so since this is going to be such a long episode, I'm going to get right into it. Well, the debate started out, of course, with impeachment question for Warren, and she talked about obstruction of justice and the Mueller report, but failed to mention, of course, that the Mueller report didn't show any collusion at all, which means that there was no reason even for the investigation in the first place. So that was conveniently left out. Uh, Then she made reference to Trump breaking the law with the phone call with Zelensky. However, uh, she and the rest of the Democrats have failed to provide any sort of penal code or something that says specifically what law Trump has broken. Okay, again, it didn't really look good for Trump to ask the Ukrainian president to look into Hunter and Joe Biden, but if you think about it for a minute, I mean, this is what every candidate does for every office across the country anyway, right? You come out when you're running for office and you talk about how awesome you are and why you should be elected. And at the same time, you also talk about how bad your opponent is and how much better you are than they are. And if your campaign is any sort of decent money, and most of them do, you go out and dig up as much dirt as you can on your opponent. I mean, have you ever heard of a negative campaign ad? I mean, that happens all the time. So yeah, it might have been poor optics for Trump to ask the Ukrainian president to look into Hunter and Joe Biden, but I honestly do not think it is illegal. And if the Democrats want to set that sort of standard, well, then doesn't that mean Hillary Clinton and the DNC should somehow be liable for prosecution about asking Ukraine? to look into um, Paul Manafort and the Trump campaign and dig up dirt on them? I mean, are they also liable for prosecution when they asked a former British spy to dig up dirt and write a fake dossier on Trump? I mean, if we're going to set a standard, then the standard should be applicable to everyone. Okay. So Bernie commented on this and talked about National security is a problem with potential of Trump holding back funds or military aid to the Ukraine. Okay, I have a problem with this. I mean, first of all, Ukraine has no right to any money or military aid from us whatsoever. And anything we give them will always come with certain strings attached. That's the way it is. If Ukraine does not do what we want them to do in the future, then the aid will go away. If they do do what we want them to do, well, then we'll keep bribing them. This is how American foreign policy works, with bribes and threats. This is nothing new. Biden commented and really didn't say anything new on this subject. He just called Trump corrupt, 
well, actually, all the candidates called Trump corrupt. Uh, okay, fine. And we're just calling him names now. Uh, Kamala called him a sellout. And I, I like how these Democratic politicians talk about a constitutional crisis and the founders of the country. But at the same time, you know for sure, they haven't read the Constitution, probably haven't even read the Declaration of Independence. And every single program they're calling for in Congress, you know, all the big spending bills that we already have and all the new ones that they are planning for in the future are completely unconstitutional anyway. So that, that's how you know it's a bunch of bullshit. Okay, Cory Booker got in and commented on, you know, making the process transparent before the American public and how Trump should comply with it. However, you know, that's not exactly what Adam Schiff is doing. He won't allow cameras into the hearings, so there's no transparency here. There's no discovery or due process at this point at all. The Democrats aren't presenting any information to Trump's team so he can amount a defense. I mean, that's how the due process is supposed to work. Trump isn't allowed to face his accuser, right? They won't let him. Adam Schiff won't even let a Republican representative into the hearings uh, who just got kicked out the other day. Okay, Klobuchar came out and said it was illegal to dig up dirt on your opponent. I mean, since when? I mean, I, this is how politics has been done for a while, all these negative campaign ads on TV. Again, wasn't this exactly what Hillary and the DNC were doing during the 2016 election campaign? Okay, then Klobuchar talked about abandoning the Kurds, and I already did a whole podcast on this. I mean, we have no obligation to keep our troops there forever and protect the Kurds, right? If you want to call the Kurds useful idiots, you can. I mean, I wouldn't. I think the Kurds were just a convenient companion for a period of time. The Kurds wanted the money and the weapons and training from us so they could pursue their own interests in the region, which is to strengthen themselves so that they can carve out a piece of territory on this Turkish-Syrian border for themselves. I mean, they don't care about American values. I mean, they want to set up their own, basically, state. So they saw the situation as a win, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't have agreed to take the, the money, weapons, and training in the first place. Part of the deal was that they have to attack ISIS, okay? So it wasn't part of the deal for the American troops to be in that region and protect them forever. I mean, the best possible solution, as I uh, mentioned the other day, was that they would form some sort of an alliance with Syria, and then, you know, Assad and the Syrian forces would help protect them. So again, as Turkey launched an offensive on the Kurds, the Kurds ended up going to Assad and the Russians for help. After all, I mean, it makes sense. This is Syrian territory. This is not American territory. We do not belong there in the first place. This is not our backyard. It's not like this skirmish is happening on the border with Mexico or something. Anyway, then at the end, you know, she fear-mongered about Russia becoming more powerful and being a threat. Oh my God, please. Russia is not a threat to the United States. Russia has the GDP of like Manhattan. And they weren't a threat 30 years ago. They are not a threat now. Russia is a threat if you directly attack them, right? Because they have nukes. That's why the United States does not directly attack Russia. Okay, next. Uh, Castro and Buttigieg got involved, and they pretty much said the same stuff, nothing new. And then Tulsi jumped in 
and she talked about the impeachment process and said, it, I mean, it should play out in the House and present all the information to the American people. But she said, if the Democrats pursue this in a highly partisan fashion, then it, it will continue to divide the country and make things worse. She was the only one who said anything close to this, and this actually makes pretty good sense to me. Andrew Chang talked about the economy and uh, why Trump was elected in Ohio. He said it's about jobs, and he said if we don't provide a bigger vision than Trump does, then he could win again. Well, yeah, I mean, it's obvious that everybody on stage agrees with impeachment. So why does it even have to be talked about anymore? I mean, they all think the same thing. So just move on already and talk about how you want to fix the country. Kind of what's your grand vision? What's your plan? So I think Andrew Yang had one of the better comments on, in this first opening round. Uh, Beto O'Rourke spoke about the troops and their sacrifice and how bad the president is and all the bad stuff he has done. And then I noticed that the moderator started to fall asleep and then I fell asleep and Beto was talking and nobody was paying attention and his campaign continued to dwindle into nothingness. And then Anderson Cooper moved on. Okay, so let's talk about leading the witness here a little bit. Anderson Cooper was addressing Joe Biden and he came out and stated that Hunter Biden did nothing wrong with accepting that board of directors position on Ukrainian gas company and said the president was falsely or has falsely accused Hunter Biden of doing something wrong. Well, how does he know? I mean, remember the prosecutor who was looking into it in the first place was fired because Joe Biden threatened Ukraine about withholding a billion bucks if they didn't fire him. Okay, Joe Biden already admitted to this on video. He bragged about it. So we don't know if Hunter did anything nefarious. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But there is obvious nepotism here, right? Hunter Biden never would have gotten that position if his dad wasn't vice president. But again, this isn't really anything new for politicians, right? This, this is how they do things. They always look out for themselves or their family. They don't care about you. This is normal for them. And if it's not to fatten their own bank accounts, well, then the next best thing for them is to think about how they're going to fatten the bank accounts of the people around them. I mean, does anyone actually think Hunter Biden would have been on this board of directors position and get paid as much money as he got if his dad wasn't the vice president? Are you freaking kidding me? Well, anyway, after Hunt Anderson Cooper said that Hunter Biden was innocent of any wrongdoing, then he went and asked Joe Biden... Why was it okay for Hunter Biden to have that position in the first place? And then it, it got kind of a little hot for a minute. Joe Biden really fumbled through an answer here and didn't have a, actually a great answer at all. He said that my son's uh, statement speaks for itself, which he just made. So Hunter Biden came out the day before the debate and made a statement uh, to the news about why he took the position and didn't didn't expect it to be attacked over it, that kind of thing. Obviously, this was planned, right? Hunter Biden had to come out and make that statement before the debate. Otherwise, he would have left his dad up there kind of floundering on stage, answering all these questions all by himself, which kind of happened anyway. And so now, Uncle Joe, all he has to do is just refer to whatever his son said and say, well, my son's statement speaks for itself. He didn't even do that well, and he fumbled through this whole bit of inquiry. 
Bernie then commented and talked about climate change, impeachment, and health care. I mean, this was really kind of odd because he didn't talk about Biden-Ukraine issue at all. He just pivoted into his own thing. Uh, not sure why he jumped in for a comment here if he wasn't going to say anything about it, uh, maybe relating to ethics. It, it really looked kind of out of place, and then the moderators kind of quickly moved on. Beto O'Rourke tried to jump in and talk over one of the moderators, and then the moderator ended up shutting him down, kind of made him look stupid. So the next question went to Warren about how she will pay for her Medicare for All plan. Will she raise taxes on the middle class? And of course the answer was, well, she's going to make the rich and the corporations pay for it. And then went into a story about a struggling family who has to pay for medical bills. I mean, the same kind of story she's used in prior debates and on her, I guess, her campaign stump speeches, right? So she basically dodged the question, and then Budigeg jumped in and called her out on it. He said it was like a simple yes or no answer, and she couldn't answer the question, you know, which is true. And then when pressed on it, she said she wouldn't sign a bill that increased costs for the middle class. Well, that's, that's kind of vague, right? Uh, there was a back and forth between Warren and Budigeg where he presented an interesting question to her about why does your plan have to kick 150 million people off of their private plans? Why can't they coexist? She didn't have an answer for that. Bernie jumped in and said, I wrote the damn bill. I mean, he uses this same line in every debate. He said the taxes are going to go up on the wealthy and that the majority of people will probably be paying less in medical care costs, but Bernie also does not have a medical plan which allows private insurance plans to exist either. Of course, he provides no details about anything and just says everything will be free and paid for and better than Canada. I, of course, remained skeptical. Then Klobuchar jumped in and called out Warren for being dishonest about how it will be paid for and also mentioned that kicking 150 million people off their private plan is a winning argument for the Republicans, well, yeah, no shit. No one wants to lose a medical plan if they already are happy with the one they have. Do you really want a government official making this choice for you? I, I mean, I know I don't. I already know it's going to lead to a disaster in the medical community. Obviously, this is something I do know something about. I mean, maybe you can question my, you know, level of detail on foreign policy with the Kurds, but, you know, medicine's in my wheelhouse, and I know this is going to be a disaster. Anyway, interestingly, then Joe Biden jumps in and says the Medicare for All plan was originally his idea and that Warren and Bernie are, pro are proposing, uh, or what they are proposing, is going to raise taxes on the middle class significantly. And then Bernie started yelling at the audience and back at Joe and people on the stage about, you know, prescription drug companies. Kamala jumped in and talked about, you know, women's reproductive health care, which is basically abortion. So her response was about getting all the baby killings paid for by the government. So it just a little point here. When I talk about, you know, these other candidates jumping in, I mean, they literally either kind of raise their hand and just start talking, or they just start talking, you know, right over somebody else talking. So that that's what I mean when I say somebody jumped in. Okay. Anyway, next. So uh, Aaron Burnett uh, moved on to jobs and asked Bernie Sanders 
about his federal jobs guarantee and whether he could provide jobs for tens of millions of Americans. And of course, Bernie said, damn right it will. Well, of course, the government can provide jobs to people and as many people as it wants. However, when you talk about jobs, you have to ask, is it in the productive sector of the economy or in the parasitic sector of the economy? Any jobs performed by government are by definition in the parasitic sector, meaning they only exist after you have already stolen money from the private sector to pay for these parasitic jobs. Government has no money of its own. It has to take the money first from businesses and corporations and from all the American people before it can give money to a government employee or government program. So again, Bernie can try to employ all these people in whatever field, I guess it doesn't really matter, but he has to be honest about the fact that if he does decide to employ all these people, well, then taxes are going to go up on everybody. Taxes are a drain on the productive part of the economy. So he'll continue to shoot the productive sector in the foot and while robbing them at the same time, right? There is a, uh, a famous story I want to talk about by, uh, involving Milton Friedman, who's an economist. And he was visiting some foreign country, I think, and talking to a politician about a construction project. He asked the politician, how come they're not using bulldozers and backhoes? Because they were digging like some huge trench or something. You know, all those men out there were using shovels instead. Well, the politician replied, well, this is a jobs program. Milton Friedman then shot back, well, I guess if it's a jobs program, they should all have spoons. So the point of the story is, yeah, government certainly can give you an unproductive job, but that's not going to advance society. That's not going to advance the standard of living for your country. It's only going to hold back everyone else in the process to pay for that unproductive job. So anyway, Bernie went into this Green New Deal plan, which is going to provide apparently 20 million jobs to everybody to deal with the climate crisis, which I don't really believe in. Andrew Yang was asked to comment, and although he wants to give everybody $1,000 a month, he did say that most people don't want government jobs, which I happen to agree with, and so at least I have that commonality with Mr. Yang. Uh, Cory Booker got involved, and he diatribed about a bunch of stuff. I'm not sure if diatribed is a real word. I think I know diatribe is, but I'm not sure if diatribed is. Anyway, so he went off on a bunch of stuff, and I found it a little kind of an annoying and difficult to follow because he talked about so many different things in a short time frame. It didn't really seem to fit, but maybe he was just happy to be given a few seconds to talk. He wanted to say as much as he could. So it looked a little bit awkward. Uh, Warren was asked to talk about her jobs plan, which calls for having employees elect the board of directors and make unions more powerful. You know, of course, the same unions which helped completely destroy the auto industry in this country and push it overseas. Uh, she also wants to give more money to Social Security and to people with disabilities. And then I had another thought. I've had this thought before, but never really commented on it. When the Democrats talk about election tampering, they never really talk about the idea of buying votes. So you look at this Andrew Yang guy who wants to give everybody $1,000 a month and how Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren 
most of their plans call for free everything, right? So free healthcare, free education, a job if you can't get one in the productive sector. They'll give you a job. Or if you're not working or don't want to work, they'll give you some unemployment money, free child care, free elder care. So doesn't all this free stuff count as some sort of vote buying? Isn't this the same thing as election tampering when you're telling all the people out there, if you vote for me, I'm going to give you all this free stuff? I'd like to hear someone's explanation on why this is not buying votes directly. So we can go back to Trump asking the Ukrainian president to look into Hunter Biden and possible, you know, corruption, which indirectly may end up of, you know, hurting Joe Biden. But if that's some sort of election tampering, then isn't going out and telling 300 million people across the country that you're going to give them all this free stuff if they vote for you, isn't that also some sort of election tampering? Uh, I just just don't get how you can square the two. It's not like all this money just exists in government, and they can pick and choose who they want to give it out to and what programs they want to pay for. Remember, government has to first steal the money from you in order to give it to someone else. So what if you don't agree with all these things the politicians want to give away for free? Then what do you do? I mean, is your voice being heard in Washington? Are you being represented by your politicians if you don't agree with all these free programs and the government's constant intervention in overseas conflicts? Maybe on your tax return, you should be able to check off the programs that as a citizen you want to pay for or not pay for And then, actually, I think you'll see what people really believe when it comes down to giving away all this free stuff and constant meddling in the affairs of other countries, right? It's certainly an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? Tulsi was asked to respond on the whole automation revolution, and she basically backed Andrew Yang's plan, and she's not in favor of a government jobs program. Okay, so that's good, I guess. Uh, Cory Booker was asked to comment on how he would get GM to bring back jobs to the state of Ohio. And then, of course, he didn't answer the question. He went off on some tangent and talked about how raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour would be better than Yang's plan of giving $1,000 a month to everybody. Oh, God, it's getting really kind of difficult to constantly talk about how bad some of these ideas are. Raising the minimum wage has caused more problems and more unemployment than any of these politicians will ever admit. Most honest economists would agree that if you're forced to pay someone higher than what they can actually bring in for that position, then that's an unsustainable position and they'll have to be let go. I mean, how can you pay someone to work for you that costs more than what they're bringing in for the company? doesn't make sense. This is exactly why businesses like McDonald's and airports have gone with kiosks. Right? Once you made it harder and more expensive to hire people, well, then the business decision becomes so much easier to hire a robot and buy an iPad for people to interface with, right? The simple thought experiment that no one ever asks these politicians is that, well, if $15 an hour is so good, well, then why not raise the minimum wage to $100 an hour or $1,000 an hour? Wouldn't that make everybody much more well off? Wouldn't that fix the poverty problem across the world? I mean, it's just completely ridiculous. No economist in the world would say that that's a good idea. No rational person in the world would say that that's a good idea. Okay, anyway, let's move on. 
Uh, Beto added nothing interesting here to the debate, despite him talking for a minute. Um, they asked Bernie about income inequality, and of course, this is such a super softball for him. He's been talking about this. Actually, I should say he's been screaming about this for years, probably since when George Washington was alive. Anyway, he offered nothing new and just shouted about it, you know, the usual statistics about the top 1% of the top 1% and the top 1%, and I kind of lost track. Um, they pivoted to the billionaire Tom Steyer, and he actually admitted something, and maybe didn't mean to be so honest, but verbatim, he said that corporations are buying the government, and they've been doing it for 40 years. Well, isn't that interesting? Bernie Sanders admitted to the same thing in one of the prior debates, and also I think a little bit Elizabeth Warren has as well, that corporations are buying politicians. Well, doesn't that tell you that one of the key players in crony capitalism is the government? Corporations are always going to look out for their best interest, just as individuals do. I mean, this is natural. So if a corporation can buy off a politician to create a regulation that helps their company and harms their competition, well, then they'll go ahead and spend the millions of dollars it takes on that politician's re-election campaign and reap billions of dollars in profits. This is an easy mathematical question for them. So the problem really isn't the corporations, right? They're just operating on human nature. The problem is that you can actually go to government and get these favors these favorable regulations and laws in the first place. This is what happens when your government is constantly intervening in the economy. It becomes necessary for a corporation to send lobbyists to Washington, D.C. in order to influence and buy off politicians so that they can get a favorable outcome for their company. This is the whole reason lobbyists exist. Do you think they all want to go to Washington and just give money to different charities out of the goodness of their hearts? No, they're buying political influence. If government didn't have the power to hand out all these favors and manage the economy, then corporations therefore would not be able to buy politicians. And therefore, they would have to compete in the open market for consumers just like everybody else. Biden was asked about taxing the rich people and then he actually kind of fumbled through this one. I'm not sure how that happened, but it was a little awkward, and then he ended up getting cut off by one of the moderators. Uh, Warren actually got a big applause on her wealth tax, and Klobuchar responded that it wasn't such a great idea, but then I noticed something weird. Klobuchar was kind of shaking the whole time she was talking. I mean, it was a mildly visible shake, and you can kind of hear it in her voice, too, so I kind of wonder if she gets nervous on stage like that, and I don't know if anybody else noticed it. I mean, it doesn't really scream of confidence, right? Yang came out and talked about that he wasn't in favor of a wealth tax, that it's been tried in a lot of different countries, and it's been repealed. Well, that's fantastic, but then he stabbed me in the eye, and he said that he wanted to have a value-added tax, which is a VAT. So I don't know if you know what a VAT is, but it's basically like a national sales tax. I mean, there really is no plan that these politicians are calling for up on stage that does not increase taxes. So then they moved into foreign policy, which happens to be one of my favorite topics. So Biden, I don't know why they started with him, but Biden seemed confused about what was going on in Syria, Iraq, and Turkey. 
Biden says he had a, a problem with Turkey and Assad, which doesn't make sense. How can he have a problem with both of them? Does he think that only the Kurds have the right to exist in this region who have no country of their own? And then he also said he'd send the troops back into northern Syria and protect the Kurds with air cover. Uh, I mean, isn't this a bit retarded? Isn't it better that Assad and the Kurds have formed an alliance on their own and have some protection from Russian forces? I mean, why should American boys die anymore in this region for anybody? So Tulsi Gabbard got involved and, as usual, was awesome on foreign policy. I mean, this was a big wow moment. She called out the politicians and the people in the mainstream media who have been championing this regime change doctrine in Syria since 2011. No one else on stage has the guts to say that but her. I mean, this is exactly right. It was the whole U.S. policy of trying to weaken Iran and their influence in the region that started this process. Well, actually, that's not true. It goes back even further, right? It was actually the problem of invading and destroying Iraq that started it all off, right? Remember, Iraq was not so friendly with Iran, so then when we destroyed Iraq, we kind of made Iran that much stronger, you know, relatively in the region. So then our stupid politicians and CIA warmongers came up with the idea. It was like, oh, man, we got to go hurt Iran. And how do we hurt Iran without directly attacking them? Well, I know. Let's hurt Assad. Yeah, that's it. That's the ticket. We'll give money and weapons uh, to these horrible Islamist extremist groups like Al-Qaeda and Al-Nusra in western Iraq, and then they'll go and beat up Assad for us. Well, of course, that's how ISIS was formed, and they became powerful enough in the region to you know, kill hundreds of thousands and wreak havoc throughout the whole area. And then this stupid policy led us down the road of giving money and, and training and weapons to the Kurds in order to attack ISIS, which we created in the first place. So basically, Tulsi's right. We caused this problem, and that's why we should stop. And she called out CNN and New York Times spe specifically because they just, again, uh, talked about her and other veterans about that they were like an Assad asset or a Russian asset. She also called them out of not talking about the Saudi genocide in Yemen. So again, Tulsi was great on foreign policy. Buttigieg got involved and he commented on the Syria Kurd issue. And it was kind of really clear to me, he, had, he has no idea what's going on there. And he's just kind of repeating some talking points that he's hearing on the news. Uh, Bernie came out and said that Turkey was not an ally of the USA, you know, despite Turkey being a NATO member since 1952, who has about 50 of our nuclear weapons, but they're still not an ally, okay? Kamala Harris jumped in and said that we sold out the Kurds and that there are four winners in this situation, Russia, Iran, Assad, and ISIS. But of course, this doesn't really make sense, right? How can both Russia, Iran, Assad and ISIS all be winners. Assad and Russia were the only ones that really routed and destroyed ISIS in the first place. So if the decision to pull troops out helps Assad and Russia, then it can't also really help ISIS, right? I mean, Syria and Assad and Russia, they have a vested interest in keeping ISIS from reforming and resurging, right? They just spent years beating the hell out of them and knocking them down to nothingness. Why would they let them come back? 
So I'm really not sure why these politicians don't understand that. It's obvious that several of these politicians really don't know what's kind of going on in the Middle East or don't know the history the way Tulsi Gabbard does. Again, uh, Biden jumped in and was kind of incoherent on some of his foreign policy answers and then fear-mongered about ISIS coming actually to the United States to attack us. Okay, so, I mean, fear-mongering is a tried-and-true, you know, I guess, political tactic. Not sure it really worked here. I don't think anybody really believes that ISIS is going to come and attack us in the United States. Uh, Beto wants to put more sanctions on Russia for meddling in the 2016 election. You know, you know the one where Trump did not collude, but where Ukraine and the British ex-spy did. Anyway, uh, Andrew Yang said that we need to modernize our tech to protect America. Okay, fine. Uh, Klobuchar jumped in and added really nothing new to the conversation. Okay, and then we moved on to guns, and Beto went first. They specifically asked Beto, how are you going to get the guns? And he dodged on the details big time and kind of spoke in broad strokes. So then he was asked again the same question, and he responded that you basically, you pass a gun ban law, and he expects people to follow the law and give the guns up voluntarily. I don't really think he has any idea how real gun owners feel. This is something akin to like being in their blood. I mean, we've had guns have been ubiquitous throughout the United States for 250 years or more, right? I mean, this is the reason that these people say, you can have it when you pry it from my cold, dead hands and come and take it. Buttigieg was also pretty bad on guns and kind of went long, and the moderators cut him off. Uh, Booker joined in and pretended again to be from the ghetto, like he did in prior debates, but offered no real plan. Uh, Klobuchar actually said she was in favor of a voluntary buyback instead of a mandatory buyback, which would do nothing, but at least she doesn't want to force people to give up their guns. Well, that's okay. I mean, that's better than mandatory. I mean, after all, a mandatory buyback is gun confiscation, Otherwise, it would be voluntary, right? Uh, Warren talked about it, added nothing new. Uh, Kamala Harris stated that she wants to have a mandatory buyback. So again, she wants gun confiscation. But uh, again, I think overall, this is really a, a losing issue for them. If they want to go down the route of the voluntary buyback, I think that is probably a better issue for centrists, right? Mandatory buybacks are going to completely turn off a large portion of the country. I mean, they're just not going to go for it. And a lot of those voters will probably be single-issue voters, uh, especially on guns. At least Castro had the guts to call out the police for shooting innocent people. So just the other day, you got this young woman who was killed by a cop where he shot her through a window. Now, I have another interesting thought experiment for you. So many of these Democrats want to get guns out of the hands of civilians. Okay, so do the same Democrats who are against police brutality and excessive violence by police, they want the only ones in a country to have guns are these police? Doesn't that strike you as a little unbalanced? Where the only ones in a country who have the ability to use guns are the cops and the criminals. Right? So all the law-abiding citizens have to give up their guns, and only the criminals, who won't give them up anyway, right, because they're criminals, and the cops get to keep their guns. 
Something seems a little off here to me. They moved on to the opioid epidemic, and of course they all want to hold the drug companies responsible for the opioid problem. I mean, it's, it's really a complex issue, and I don't want to get into the details on this kind of post-debate podcast. So I'm thinking I'm going to have to do a whole separate podcast on the opioid problem. Okay, the next topic they talked about was big tech. And it looks like most of them want to break up the big tech companies, or at least heavily regulate them. So I understand that these companies have a lot of power and influence Americans in one direction or another and shut down the opposition of opinions or opinions they don't like, right? I mean, this is a known thing. I mean, the first thing we can do here is remove their political protection, remove their ability to be free from tort law, which is, you know, being free from getting sued, because, you know, these big tech companies claim to operate as a platform instead of as a publisher. But when they promote certain points of view and squash other points of view that they disagree with politically, then they certainly are operating like a publisher, right? So that their platform protection should be taken away. And then through lawsuits and social pressure, their power can be kept in check. I mean, and this will also help competitors come into the space as well and offer some sort of alternative. Okay, one of the next topics they got into was abortion. And of course, they're all calling it reproductive rights and reproductive freedom. But I call it baby killing because that's what it is. And abortion doesn't result in a live baby. If it did, then I couldn't call it baby killing. Uh, Kamala, you know, wanted to tell everybody that men can't tell women what to do. Okay. Klobuchar said the same sort of thing and blamed Trump. All right. Booker wants to establish a government office of reproductive freedom. I mean, that, that just sounds like a really stupid idea right there. I mean, to me, legally, this should be a state's rights issue and have nothing to do with the federal government at all. Roe v. Wade never should have happened. It should have died as a Texas state issue in the first place. The thought that one rule on abortion has to apply to the entire country is ridiculous. The culture in the people of, let's say, Alabama is nothing like it is in New York or California. They don't feel the same way on this issue at all, and therefore they shouldn't be forced to follow an edict from the general government favoring one view or another. Morally, this is a separate issue, and everyone's entitled to their own views on it, whether you think it's a killing a baby or not. And Tulsi, again, thank God for Tulsi Gabbard, she said one of the only things that made sense on this issue, something that the Democratic Party agreed with years ago, she said that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Okay, I'm getting into the last bits of the podcast here. Uh, I watched over two and a half hours, and then I started zoning out. And sorry, I, cu- I just couldn't keep it up. Anyway, I want to finish up with something that Bernie said near the end of the debate. I mean, he was addressing why his vision of the country was the right one. And he said it's because it's what the people want. So I certainly have a problem with this. Doing everything, you know, using the power of the general government to give people everything they want and all the free stuff that they want is really the same thing as pure democracy. This is a problem, and it's not a small problem. Pure democracy is the same thing as two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner, right? 
That's the easiest analogy I can think of. So another analogy, it's also kind of where 51% of the people get to tell the other 49% what to do, right? How much they have to pay in taxes, what they can say, what they can't say, what types of jobs they can have, what types of schools their kids can go to. Every little single issue and part of life that you can think of can get decided by a simple majority. This is not the way our government was designed. It operates now like nothing was designed uh, that was designed anyway, but as a pure democracy, it would be incredibly worse. Doesn't it make sense to you that if people can vote themselves free stuff and have all these politicians telling them, telling them that they can, then they'll do so? Well, this will, of course, come at the expense of everyone else in the minority, and this will cause and help accelerate the downfall of the country. The only reason the United States became as rich and as powerful as it did was because pure democracy did not exist, and the interventions and meddling by the federal government was kept in check for a long time by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Okay, so no socialist countries ever become wealthy. The only ones that are wealthy in a socialist country are the elites and the politically connected, you know, this tiny percentage of the country. There is no real middle class, so 95 or let's say 99% of the people are all equally miserable. You have to be a capitalist country first, right? Relatively open to free markets and private property and that sort of stuff, and then turn socialist in order to kind of maintain some of your wealth for a period of time. When a socialist country turns more capitalist, however, more towards a free market, the standard of living of the people in that country goes up. Everybody does better, including the poor. When a capitalist country turns more socialist, then the standard of living goes down over time, and everybody does worse, especially the middle class and the poor, except for those who are politically connected and are able to buy off the politicians. So quickly, I kind of just want to mention... I looked at Real Clear Politics, their, uh, I guess their national polls before the debate. And I tried to look at it today doing this podcast after the debate, but of course there's no new polling out yet that really kind of changes the numbers, right? So before the debate, the national poll still had Biden ahead of Warren, who was ahead of Bernie, okay? And then everybody else is trailing them. So maybe... We have to give it like a week or two, and then we can see how these, I guess, debates, uh, or how this debate changed the polls. Anyway, uh, in my opinion, the best answers of the night were given by Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang. I mean, obviously that doesn't mean I agree with them on all their domestic policies, but out of the, I guess, candidates up on stage, they were the most likable and had the best answers, I thought. Tulsi was, of course, the best in foreign policy by a long stretch. And interestingly, the Drudge Report, which probably doesn't get too many Democratic voters anyway, their poll for who won the debate had Tulsi come in first and Andrew Yang come in second. Okay, I think overall Bernie was really a non-factor. Uh, he wasn't slow or anything. I, I mean, I thought he would kind of look more tired after his heart attack, but, you know, he just went back to his usual self and really did nothing special to kind of raise his poll numbers, I thought. So I think over time, he's going to continue to slide. Now let's talk about Biden. I don't think Biden looked very polished at all. 
and he made a lot of errors in speaking, and he looked really confused at times. I mean, sometimes just saying the completely wrong things. This was not a good showing for him. I think he'll start sinking soon. This, I think, plus the Ukraine issue, will continue to tank his chances of being the candidate. Now, Elizabeth Warren. Although she dodged attacks and questions on paying for her plans, I think she overall didn't do anything to really hurt her recent surge. So I think she'll continue to pick up numbers in the polls over time at the expense of Biden and Bernie because they continue to look overall pretty weak. So I would say that she definitely did better than Biden and Bernie and will probably overtake Biden in a few months. Klobuchar did fine, but she really doesn't have enough support to catch any of these front runners. So I think, you know, her campaign is basically dead. I, I'd be surprised if she lasted past uh, December. I mean, Buttigieg did pretty good, but I also don't think he has a chance in the long run. Maybe he places fourth and fifth going forward, but that's not going to be enough to carry him into the, you know, late 2020 to go up against Trump. Now, the biggest losers, and there's a bunch of them, are Beto, Booker, Castro, Steyer, and Kamala. These candidates really did nothing of import at all to set themselves apart or raise their numbers. I mean, Steyer is a billionaire, so he can stay in on his own dime for a while. But all these other players have to raise money. And I think they're going to be out of it sooner rather than later. Okay, so schedule-wise... Um, there are more debates scheduled for November and December, and probably some going from January to April, although none of those are put on paper just yet. And the state voting starts in Iowa and New Hampshire in February. So I hope to continue to analyze and break down these debates in the future for you guys. Maybe the next one I can get Joey involved. We'll have to see. But this one just ran so long, and I had so much to say. It would have been like a two-and-a-half-hour podcast if I had gotten Joey involved. Well, that will do it for today. Thank you all for listening to the Liberty on Fire podcast. Please do me two favors. Number one is to share the show. Remember that we want to continue to advance the message of individual liberty, and sharing and growing the show is one of the best ways to do that. The second favor is to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. A five-star rating is much appreciated. Also, please check out our website, libertyonfire.org. Thank you very much. And until next time, let's keep those fires of liberty burning bright. Yeah.